2: a shock defeat in the Cheshire and amersham by-election gives Boris Johnson something to think about as we mark five years since the Brexit referendum. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly.
3: Uh, yes, it was, a, was a, certainly a disappointing result, and I want to thank Peter Fleet, who's an outstanding a local candidate. Uh, but uh, there were particular circumstances there, and... Um, we are getting on with delivering our agenda for the whole country.
2: Ed Davies' Liberal Democrats stunned Westminster last week by overturning a 16,000 Tory majority in the Buckinghamshire seat of Chesham and Amersham. Are the Conservative southern heartlands at risk? And almost two years after Boris Johnson claimed to have a plan to fix social care, we still haven't seen it, and the Prime Minister and the Chancellor seem to have fallen out over how it should be paid for. What's going on? And meanwhile in the Labour Party, Keir Starmer shakes up his team plus. So there it is. The UK has left the European Union. Has the Brexit referendum, which happened five years ago today, if you can believe it, changed British politics forever? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. first. For a roundup of the latest news out of Westminster, there's quite a lot, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Gabby, it's lovely to have you on. First of all, let's start with this latest news about the privatisation of Channel 4. I mean, I I feel like this is a story that's been written quite a lot over the years. (laughs) But um, it'd be a big change to the television landscape, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's
4: not, as you say, a total shock. Government's been talking about this for a while. But it's a pretty seismic change in television. Channel 4 is is—it's a unique setup now. It's not publicly funded, but it is publicly owned. And it was established with a sort of public service ethos to cater for audiences that aren't served by other channels at a time when there barely were any other channels. And I suppose the question is, would a new commercial owner be more Of a ratings chaser, would it still want to do, you know, an hour-long in-depth evening news show, say, which is expensive to produce, or would we just get more Love Island spin-offs? Not, I have to say, that I have anything against Love Island at all, (laughs) um but it is it is a big potential pot of money from a sell-off at a time when the government is really really short of ways to raise money for all the expensive projects it has in mind.
2: Mm, And talking of difficult financial conversations, let's move on to this battle over spending and social care, Gabby. I mean. This has been something Boris Johnson promised us, of course, when he first arrived in Downing Strait in 2019. We still haven't seen this plan. And it's been reports this week, a bit of a clash between him and Rishi Sunak about how to go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is something that governments of all stripes have been sort of inconclusively wrestling with for a long time, because it's incredibly expensive, and all the solutions are incredibly popular. And apart from anything else, I mean, it's always been a tricky problem. But what we're seeing here is the downside of cakeism, which is the idea that you can have your cake and eat it, you can make wildly popular promises today, like you have to sell your house, and not worry too much about how you're going to deliver them tomorrow, because tomorrow will somehow never come. But actually, reality catches up with you in the end. And I think what we're seeing now is is government struggling to square the circle of of what it's promised and what it can actually deliver
2: and to some extent rishi sunak seems to be making himself into you know that the guy who has to tell boris johnson that you you can't have your cake and eat it doesn't doesn't he i mean i suppose that's always the chancellor's role to some extent but you feel a little bit of tension between them and perhaps rishi sunak is a slightly different kind of politician Mm. And the chancellor's job, as you say, is always is always the person who says no. But in
4: this case, um, he seems to be the reality check. Um, a lot of MPs increasingly see him as sort of the grown up in the room, or, or certainly the person who stands for a more familiar Tory approach to public spending, which is to do with prudence and keeping borrowing down and not spending money that you don't have. You know, and that endears him to a part of the. Tory backbench party and and that in a way doesn't help the relationship because number 10 doesn't 100% trust Rishi Sunak's motives they think he has his eye on the top job you know we've had uh, just this week we've had a very sort of flattering profile of him in the papers which is all about how he starts his day with a peloton class and listens to Britney and eats yogurt and blueberries for breakfast or whatever it is you know there's a certain sense of him being positioned for something which almost certainly doesn't help the relationship and you're starting to see tensions in that relationship for the first time.
2: And what does it tell us about Johnson? I mean, it, it, the, the politics of this issue, this social care issue, are always incredibly difficult, aren't they? But he he doesn't seem to be he's particularly great at grappling with difficult decisions or with confrontations, Johnson, does he? You sort of think about that Dominic Cummings description of him chairing cabinet meetings and then sort of, you know, as soon as anything difficult comes up, says, let's take this offline and then sort of does a thumbs up and, you know, pegs it out of the room. It's it, these difficult politics of priorities type decisions he doesn't seem to be terribly good at.
4: He doesn't like confrontation. He doesn't like confrontation on a personal level, I don't think. And that's that's always been true. He tends to Prefer to tell people what they want to hear and, and kind of change it behind their backs when they're out of the room. But as prime minister, there comes a point where you, you have to choose a side. You can't just agree with everyone around you and run away. You, you're also dealing at this point with the legacy as well of you know a difficult relationship with Matt Hancock, the health secretary. He's also the sort of the third sort of um, wheel of this this conversation. We're only a few days from um, the revelation that the prime minister thinks the health secretary is hopeless. And Hancock is still in a position where every time he goes out to do an interview, someone says, oh, are you hopeless? Can you work for someone who thinks you're hopeless? You know, these, these are not sort of favourable conditions in which to have a difficult conversation, put it that way.
2: No, absolutely. And a lot of these conversations will be taking place, won't they? With at least half an eye to the next general election, which you know could be three years off, but maybe quite a bit less than that.
4: Yes, because any changes to social care would take a fair while to work their way through the system, and you know are likely to be coming in. Suppose we have an earlier election than expected. Suppose it's twenty twenty three. You know, this this stuff could be coming in just as um, an election is. In the offing, there are also implications here in some ways for the levelling up agenda because anything that any social care policy that's basically hinged on allowing people to pass down property to their children, well, that's going to disproportionately benefit people who've got big, expensive houses to hand down to their children. That's primarily um, the southeastern London. It's less
2: appealing perhaps in the north. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Gabby, talking of general elections, Keir Starmer's team had a bit of a shake-up this week. It's not—it's not over. It seems to be part of the sort of rolling reverberations of that that Hartlepool by-election loss. But we've seen Jenny Chapman, who who's his political director, very strong supporter of his, moving aside. Other job changes to follow. We're told what's going on there. Do you think this is something Starmer's
4: friends and his enemies have been talking about for a while? The sense that he's. Back office operation puts a lot of noses out of joint in the Parliamentary Labour Party. The MPs aren't happy. They feel shut out of things. And while they might put up with that, if Starmer had a 10-point lead over the Tories and everything was going brilliantly, they might say, well, you obviously know what you're doing, we'll leave you to it. When things go badly, people start to get very restive indeed. And after he lost Harley and Seed Starmer reshuffled his shadow cabinet, he was massively criticised for for doing that because it looked like he was shunting the blame onto other people rather than taking the responsibility himself. So it's looking as if Labour may well lose the Batley and Spen by-election coming up. It does look as if this time he's trying to get a reshuffle of his backroom operation in first. We know there was going to be some changes because we know Deborah Mattinson, the pollster, is coming in. But I think the risk this time is that the changes are big enough to unsettle people and to make you enemies, but not quite big enough to make a visible difference to voters. So the people think, aha, you know, clearly something is drastically afoot here. I think the problem is also that MPs start to ask, you know, is the king really this badly advised? Or could the problem possibly be the king himself? Is he blaming other people for what are actually his failings?
2: Yeah, indeed. And it's this MPs and how happy they are but you know how much difference does it make do you think to how well a leader performs how well the party performs you know that that sort of backroom operation works well I mean they're a bit sort of Westminster bubbles these stories obviously aren't they most of the people <laughs> that you know director of communications and all the many of these sort of job changes that we'll be talking about people you know who aren't close watchers of it won't know these people or what they do but how much does it matter that that works effectively that team around the leader do you think these are the jobs that you never notice when they're done well, but when things don't go well, you start to see the,
4: the grit in the machine, so to speak. And I think without that operation around you that's running smoothly and harmoniously and pulling everything together so you're all running in the same direction, you know, the the wheels start to come off fairly quickly. So the question for many people be though is this purely a sort of operational thing you know that you've got a few square pegs in round holes and you need to put people in different jobs and then everything will be better or is the problem more fundamental is it to do with Labour's policy offering or lack of it is it to do with Starmer himself is it to do with something that you can't change by moving everyone around a job.
2: Talking about by-elections you mentioned Batley and Spen there, which feels like a headache for Labour, and of course we saw Hartlepool. There was a very interesting result last Thursday, wasn't there, in Chesham and Amersham, sort of true blue, we thought Tory territory, and Boris Johnson got a bit of a shock. He certainly did. I think what we're seeing is the downside
4: of forging a new electoral coalition, as the, the Tories have done very successfully. I and mean, the upside, obviously, it gives you landslide majority. You know, you, it gives you untravelled power. But the downside is you've brought together two quite different sets of voters with different priorities and sometimes they're going to be in conflict and you can't assume that the old base has nowhere else to go so I think the result in Chesham and Amersham has the overturning of a really solid Tory majority that sent a shiver down the spine of other southern Tories and I suspect as a result the planning reforms which were clearly an issue in in Chesham and Amersham the Lib Dems made great hay with this idea that the Tories are going to build all
2: over the countryside you know I think those are in for a very rocky ride indeed and Boris Johnson told his cabinet earlier this week in response to some of this criticism, I think, that levelling up is about the whole country. But presumably you get to a point where that just becomes meaningless, don't you? Either either you know, you're know, you helping some left-behind areas or you're helping everyone, in which case it's not really levelling up, is it? I
4: don't think that's what, put it this way, I don't think that's what voters in the Red Wall seats understood by levelling up. What they meant, understood it to mean was, you know, your areas haven't had a fair crack of the whip and in future they're going to. And I think there's always been this tension in that... To the Tories, leveling up meant, you know, we, we obviously we're going to do things for these places and we're going to pour money into these places, but that no one in the south is going to have to lose as a result. And I think a very interesting passage in in Deborah Mattinson's book actually about the Red Wall and the focus group she conducted up there, yeah, which which she found a very different feeling among voters. They actively wanted, felt the south needed to lose out in order for the for the north to gain. There needs to be a quid pro quo, and and
2: that's what I think government is struggling with. To some extent now. And meanwhile, Ed Davies, Liberal Democrats, you know, they'd struggled to cut through during the pandemic. They've got a bit of a spring in their step, haven't they? Mm -hmm. Having been missing, presumed dead for the last
4: two elections. It's not just actually a Lib Dem revival. I think it's the return in a big way of tactical voting. The Labour vote in Chesham and Amersham absolutely just vaporised. And that's, you know, some people have turned that into a weapon to attack Kirstama with. But if you talk to local activists, they'll tell you it's big. People could see the Libs were best placed to get a Tory MP out. And they did what they thought they needed to do to make that happen. And I think... If there'd been a southern seat where Labour was the obvious challenger, was second placed, then I suspect a lot of Liberal Democrat voters would have returned the favour. I mean, the the impact of not having had a progressive party in power for so long, I think, is that you're seeing the re-emergence of a committed anti-Tory vote that is willing to grit its teeth and and do whatever it takes to get rid of a Tory MP. And the Labour Party should actually probably take heart from that. It's the return of something that helped to deliver Labour a landslide in 1997. In some seats, you know, Labour needs the Lib Dems to be be strong, to thrive.
2: And does that mean Keir Starmer should be talking to the Lib Dems? Do you think, or is this something that sort of happens organically, as you say, voters themselves have a look and they see which is the, the strongest local candidate? Do you know, do you need sort of pacts and deals, a sort of progressive alliance type approach? I think in a by-election, voters are brilliant at going, okay, you know, what
4: should I do here to make a make an upset happen. It's very easy if there's only one place that a small party like the Lib Dems is, is fighting at the time. You know, It's very easy to pour all their energies into it. It's much, much harder to get people to do that in a general election. But I think we're going to see for the next few months a raging argument about whether there should be a sort of formal official conversation between the parties or whether actually that just puts voters off. You know, They don't like necessarily the idea that something's being stitched up by the parties doing deals behind closed doors. And also there's a a quite patronising assumption often that Lib Dems are really just Labour voters in disguise you know that they're perfectly happy to throw their weight in behind the Labour party where it helps well they're not all you know some some are Lib Dem because they're really really Lib Dem and you know some Lib Dems if they had to you know have a second choice it would be the Tories so it's a lot more complicated than just saying all the other parties will get together and agree an anti-Tory platform and storm to victory.
2: Gabby Hinslip, thanks ever so much thanks for joining us thank you After the break, we go way, way back to 2016, to a day most in UK politics will find hard to forget. We'll be right back.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot...
2: Cast your mind back to 2016. Does any of this ring a bell?
5: The British people have spoken and the answer is we're out. The
3: dawn is breaking.
5: I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain. Brexit means Brexit. So the no's have it, the no's have it. Unlock! Ah!
1: So I am today announcing that I will resign. In the UK, there's just one day to go to what's being called the most important election in a generation. It's
5: a conservative win. I will not lead the party in any future general election
3: campaign. Two, one. The most important thing to say tonight is that this is not an end, but a beginning.
2: British voters went to the polls on this day five years ago, leading to a country divided not only along party lines, but by a simple question, leave or remain? Did Brexit change the political landscape in the UK forever? I reflected on these past five torrid years with Laura Parker, Labour activist. She was Momentum's national coordinator until 2019 and previously worked as private secretary to Jeremy Corbyn. James Starkey, head of networks for the Vote Leave campaign and former government adviser and Arnand Menon, Director of the UK and a Changing Europe Think Tank and Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. So, welcome everyone. I am going to have to start by asking you where you were when the result of the referendum came in. So I know where I was, I was on the 4am shift and I was sort of whizzing into the Guardian offices in a taxi. And my taxi driver was absolutely delighted at the the result. And that was, which sort of was just about to be becoming pretty clear by that point. Um, James, presumably, you must have been at at Vote Leave HQ, were you?
5: Yes, I was at Vote Leave. um, The press team took a bit of the afternoon off. But yeah, I was in the Vote Leave offices when, it, when it, all the results were coming through.
2: And were you, you know, how do you expect, you know, were you at that point, did you think you'd done it?
5: So it's a funny one. I did kind of two roles. I did regional press and business engagement. One of the business guys had kind of said to me on the day, you know, look, I keep seeing what's in the press and we're not going to win. But I can't find anyone who's actually voting for Remain. And I had a dinner with Lee Kane and Lizzie Loudon, and they, we kind of did a straw poll. I'd leave it up to them in future to say what their predictions were. <laughs> Mine was fifty-two forty-eight to vote Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I hope you made, I hope you put money on it.
5: I did not put any money on it. No, I didn't. <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't have the courage of my convictions. Unfortunately.
1: And Laura, where were you? What do you remember about that night? Oh, gosh, I try not to remember it too often. I was in Labour Party HQ with a relatively small group of people from Corbyn's. I was working for Jeremy at the time. I'd just started working three weeks before the referendum. So I was with my relatively newish colleagues. And yeah, I had also before, I'd had a sort of probably the polar opposite experience. I, I lived in Vauxhall. So as a campaigner, I'd campaigned for Remain in a very, very Remain voting part of the country. But I'd obviously watched the news and I guess before the results started coming in I was I was hoping that Romaine had done it thinking probably that Romaine had done it probably just done it but I remember that we had the on the hour updates of numbers and I think it was somewhere between about 3.30 and 4 in the morning it became pretty clear and then there was a bit of a mad scramble as people decided what Jeremy would say which you might argue he should have planned beforehand <laughs>
2: And it was interesting Laura because you're obviously very ardent remainer and went on to campaign very strongly for people's vote and so on and there was a real feeling among some people in labor on that night I remember in the early hours of that morning that Jeremy Corbyn hadn't really articulated how they felt you know there were obviously lots of strong remainers in labor who felt quite grief-stricken and you know Jeremy sort of went out there didn't he and kind of said you know we have to enact this let's let's move on i mean was was there much talk about how he should
1: respond there was discussion about it. I mean, I think I, I was torn between sort of professional head, which said, well, you know, Jeremy the Democrat is going to obviously honour the result. He, everyone had said they would before the vote. So, you know, there was a bit of a can't win if you do, can't if you don't. But, I, you know, I understood the instinct to want to trigger Article 50. It was obviously a mistake on behalf of everybody, government and opposition, to think that that was just a simple act without having really a plan. Personally, of course, I was really, I mean, I probably still am, uh, pretty upset. But I don't think that that really kicked in for many of us until some significant time later. Mm.
2: So we'll talk more about the the Labour's response and and the sort of collective nervous breakdown or whatever it was that happened on on that side. But James, in the Vote Leave camp, how much thinking had there been about what kind of Brexit we were going to end up with? And the assumption was that David Cameron would hang around, right?
5: I mean, I think it's fairly well covered. The, the Vote Leave campaign, I don't think it's unfair to say, obviously, you know, D- Dom led it. These are kind of his decisions, but it saw itself very much as that as a campaign for that referendum in the sense, you know, all of our contracts, me included, ended on the day of the referendum. So I think in terms of like what the Brexit was after it, that was felt to be kind of up to the politicians within the context of seeing how the campaign went.
2: Arna, did you realise at that point that it was going to be an incredibly complex process? I mean, I think we, I can remember when we were writing about the Remain campaign, there was some story we wrote that came from the sort of stronger inside that said, I think it might have been a speech David Cameron made or whatever, but that said, you know, if it's Brexit, you're looking at sort of 10 years of negotiations with the EU and with other trading nations, which at the time seemed kind of mad, but, you know, now, now seems like quite a conservative estimate. I mean, was it always obvious that it was going to be a really complex and difficult process?
3: Even that first morning about 9, 10 o'clock after Cameron had gone, just reflecting, gee, what, a, what an utter failure of political leadership we'd witnessed from both parties. I mean, Cameron hadn't allowed the civil service to do any preparations. So there was absolutely no plan. And I just thought when I heard Corbyn say, let's trigger Article 50 immediately, it was just barking mad. I mean, we just, because the one thing that was obvious from Article 50 was that one of the aces we had up our sleeve was to delay triggering. As soon as you triggered it, anyone who read Article 50, and admittedly, that wasn't many people that morning, but we had, it was quite clear that once that clock started ticking, we were going to be in a weaker situation. And, and the combination of Corbyn saying that and Cameron walking away left me slightly gobsmacked, I had to say.
5: One of the questions, and you know, you can never know the answer to this, it's one of those things that's great in hindsight, is did it need to happen in the exact way it did happen? You know, we had that election, which was perhaps unnecessary in 2017 and caused more, not less, political chaos. Did Cameron need to go when he went, etc.? So, well, some of the events that happened after perhaps made that process, that three, four years it really took us in the end to get to even where we are now, perhaps more difficult than it could have been in other circumstances.
3: But on the sort of EU side of it, I think there were two things that were absolutely crucial. The first is, Because a Remainer became prime minister, she devoted her first year to proving her Brexit credentials to the ERG. She didn't feel secure enough to take them on in any way, shape or form. And I think it might have been very different had someone from Vote Leave won that election. And the second thing I think was absolutely fundamental was because the Tory leadership campaign didn't go the distance, because essentially Theresa May ended up being elected unopposed, she didn't have to spell out a vision of Brexit, which then got the endorsement of the membership and of her MPs. And again, I think if she'd been forced to do that, so if she had become prime minister, having spelled out something of her vision of the future of the UK-EU relationship, I suspect things might have panned out rather differently.
2: Mm, And and Laura, we sort of went, didn't we, from thinking that Theresa May was a Remainer who might perhaps, you know, go for a sort of soft kind of Brexit and, you know, perhaps even a Brexit that Labour might be able to support. There were certainly noises of that kind from Jeremy Corbyn you know, to a campaign on the Remain side that felt, no, soft Brexit, you know, wasn't going to happen and, and they had to go for a referendum. I mean, a lot changed in that period. And I wonder how much you think that was to do with what was going on in Labour and how much of it was to do with, you know, Theresa May and sort of how she handled things.
1: The more the more that Theresa May was forced to capitulate to the sort of more extreme voices on her side, the more Remain was emboldened But I wonder whether they might have played out differently if the Parliamentary Labour Party had felt that one of theirs, you know, a more sort of middle of the road leader, they might have been forgiven more easily than Jeremy was.
2: Oh, and do you think that's right? Do you think do you think there was a sort of jaundiced sense that, that Jeremy Corbyn was a sort of closet Brexiter? Did that sort of feed this, this idea that actually you had to keep pushing him and ultimately you had to push him towards accepting a referendum, which was not something he would ever have done instinctively, I don't think. A second referendum, I should say.
3: No, no, I think there's definitely an element of truth to that. And I think also the fact of Corbyn became really important when we got to the tail end of 2019 and those parliamentary debates, because firstly, it you know the threat of Corbyn made more Conservative MPs remain loyal than would have been the case, I think, had the Labour leader been someone they felt a little bit safer about, as it were. I think the threat of Corbyn held the Conservative Party together to a far greater extent than would have been the case. Otherwise. I mean, of course, one of the ironies of the whole thing is by the time we got to the end of the process, Theresa May had in fact negotiated a Brexit deal that many in the Labour Party could have supported.
2: James, you mentioned this kind of realignment that's gone on that Dominic Cummings has talked about as well on the right. You know, Boris Johnson's Tories are in quite a different place, aren't they? I mean, as you say, Theresa May started to do some of it, but you've got this kind of marrying of of sort of left wing economics. Let's spend a lot of money on the NHS with, with kind of quite right wing positions on things like crime, immigration, you know, kind of cultural war issues. I mean, was that something Vote Leave were conscious of, that they were sort of creating a new political direction?
5: From my own perspective, Vote Leave or working in the Tory party for the last few years, I think it's that this idea of the centre ground, where is the centre ground, what is it and so on, and how we see it through the parties that we've all grown up with. The Tory party, to me, is still slightly wrestling with where it is. And we've seen some of that post the uh, Cheshire and Amersham by-election. I'm not an expert on it, but I'm not sure the Labour Party has quite consoled itself to where its base is and what that exactly looks like and these are things that I think have been changing over years but if Vote Leave did anything it brought to the forefront of our minds because of such a dramatic decision and we know it polarised the country and it's led to these leadership battles and these two elections in that period where the debates have been placed before party members and before the public to make decisions and I think that's where that's where and why you've seen the alignment, in my own view.
2: Arnold, is that right? What What does the data tell us about that realignment and, and what's happened over that period?
3: I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, here I've got to stop and just recommend the book Brexit Land by Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska, because what they say, and I think they're absolutely right, is what the referendum did was it gave solid identities and labels and tribes to two groups that had been there in British politics for decades but had never had those things before. It really activated that values divide. And James is absolutely right. The sweet spot in British politics was for a party that was sort of interventionist on the economy and social conservative on values. And that, strangely enough, is exactly where Boris Johnson seems to sit at the moment.
2: And Laura, do you think Labour has really come to terms with the fact that that the Conservatives have occupied this sort of slightly different political space in in the wake or they've used Brexit to occupy this slightly different political space?
1: I think the party is struggling to find its feet and and in many ways, has a not dissimilar challenge to the tories does it Does it bend over backwards to talk to a certain demographic in certain parts of the country at the expense of some of its other base? We're nervous about saying anything really about brexit, and I think that may be to our detriment because there is still a great deal more to be said. Laura
2: Gordon-Brown said the other day, didn't he, that he would campaign for the UK to rejoin the EU. I mean, is that is that the right thing to do? Can you see yourself campaigning for rejoining at some future
1: point? A future, future point, but but not now. I don't think the politics of now is a rejoin campaign. And Keir has been very careful not to send that signal. The politics of now, for, for me, is holding the Conservative government to account with the various promises it made Eventually, yes, I, I would hope. But then, you know, what would we be rejoining and, and on what basis?
2: And finally, to all of you, um, we've had this incredibly polarised period, haven't we, where you even, you know, you've got kind of family members who weren't able to talk to each other about Brexit anymore because it became this like incredibly divisive issue. And I just wonder whether you think... We can move on from that or we have moved on from that. You know, has the pandemic sort of put things in proportion a bit? Are we able to sort of bring, you know, end that division a little bit, end that polarisation and bring people back together a bit? Arnold, what do you think?
3: I don't think it's easy to end the polarisation because it's not just about Brexit. It's a broader values divide, isn't it? So this, you know, the debate might take the form of a row over statues or a row over... Gay rights or whatever it might be, I think it'll be very, very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. What I would say, though, is it is perfectly plausible as we come out of lockdown, if the economic situation deteriorates, whether it's via inflation or whether it's via unemployment, that we might in six months time find ourselves in a political environment that feels a lot more like the old political environments where actually the argument is about economics and not about values. And remember, whilst Labour is very vulnerable on values for the reasons Laura has pointed out, that it's a, it's a very, very divided tribe, the Tories are equally vulnerable on economics because by creating a values coalition, you've created a coalition that doesn't really have a homogenous position when it comes to the key issues of the size of the state, levels of state intervention, levels of taxes. And we're seeing hints of that this week in the debates over social care, Northern Powerhouse and so on.
2: James, do you think that's right? Is it tricky for the Tories if we sort of move away from this this values divide?
3: Yeah, I think
5: Anna's bang on. I mean, I would say just to separate one thing, I think on the issue of Brexit, we're moving past it. And I think a sign of that was actually the election. The get Brexit done appealed to a lot of kind of soft remainers, if you like. We knew there was that third in the middle who could go either way and some of them that wouldn't remain, which was just a feeling of like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But I think, as Anna alluded to, the economy and how that goes over the next year or two will be interesting. And particularly in the Tory party, one MP remarked to me the other day that the problem with a lot of the new MPs is they see themselves as ca- campaigners and they're not, they're legislators. And that it's all too easy to say, well, we need 100 billion here and, here and there. And I think the pandemic, rather than Brexit, has a lot to do with that kind of attitude. There definitely is different views in the Tory party, which if we had a stress of a, of a kind of poor economic situation could could well play out.
2: And Laura, do you think we could move beyond politics of the sort of, it was a really emotionally charged, wasn't it, that period after the referendum? Do you think something like politics as usual could return a little bit less polarised perhaps?
1: Well, I think the polarisation, as Anand suggested, will remains and because it's not, you know, Brexit didn't divide us. Brexit showed the divides. It's at a personal level, we'll have to get beyond it. We have to get beyond it, in my view, by, by doing what we can to ameliorate the worst aspects of Brexit, which I cannot, still not and will not support, which doesn't mean I'm not reconciled to it existing. But it sort of depends who you talk to. I mean, you know, many of us, many millions of us have had our lives quite fundamentally changed by this. So I think the pandemic may have put it in some perspective, but we mustn't overlook the very real problems that we still need to solve.
2: Thank you all ever so much. Anna Menon, Laura Parker and James Starkey. Thanks very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedan speaks to former Congressman Tom Perriello about why Catholic bishops in the US are choosing to defy Pope Francis in order to punish Joe Biden. But for now, I want to thank our guests Gabby Hinsliff, Arnold Menon, Laura Parker and James Starkey. The producer is Jolene Garfan and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening.